misdiagnoses are a tragically common medical problem. So often they're, they're not overly serious though. So last, uh, well, it was a few months ago when I thought I had once again been sort of attacked by chiggers. Now listen, coming from coastal California, I don't know what these little red beastly things are. I'm not familiar with them, not accustomed to them. But Guy Wilcox's backyard introduced me to them. And I had a rather unpleasant experience. And after some scars on my leg, I thought these things had come back for me. So I declared war, scraping and tearing at my own skin, only to find out that those little red bumps was actually poison ivy. Yeah, you know what that means. I had made the problem significantly worse and spread it around my body. Now, granted, I recognize, yeah, misdiagnosis, not overly serious, though. Some discomfort, yes, but a little embarrassment, perhaps, but, but nothing overly serious. And yet some misdiagnoses are dangerously serious, such as the famous case of 12-year-old Rory Staunton back in 2012. He was at school one day, 12-year-old boy, diving for basketball in the school gym. He cut his arm. A little later that day, he was suffering from a fever. He was vomiting. He had severe leg pain, went in to see his pediatrician. Pediatrician thought perhaps he had some kind of a stomach bug, needed fluids, sent him down to the ER. He received fluids. The ER doctor thought he was doing better and sent him home. But those discharge papers didn't note the fact that he had an irregularly high heartbeat, didn't note the mottled skin, didn't note that he was discharged before a very critical blood report came back, revealing an explosion of of white blood cells in his own body. And the culprit wasn't, in fact, a stomach bug, but it was deadly sepsis. And by the time Rory was back in the ER, he was already under full-blown organ failure, and tragically, it was too late. And sadly, those kind of misdiagnoses are too common. Professor Newton Toker at the prestigious Johns Hopkins School of Medicine noted that misdiagnoses are the hidden part of the iceberg that dwarfs all other medical mistakes. It's estimated that in a 30-year career of an ER doctor, the average doctor will send home 17 patients that will die an avoidable death within seven days. That's a rather haunting statistic if you stop and think about it. And the root of the problem, they say... It's overconfidence. Overconfidence. Now, humility and second-guessing isn't exactly a virtue. Apparently, they teach you in medical school. And so, quoting researchers, overconfidence in our diagnostic acumen is a major part of the problem. Physicians have, quote, no idea how error-prone they are. So often, they see the problem with, quote, the other guy. Now, I recognize most of us aren't conducting such metal diagnoses on a regular basis. But what about the spiritual diagnosis that we all have to take? Right? The the spiritual condition of our own souls as we assess that. Is it possible this morning that you've walked in and is it possible that you could suffer from a kind of spiritual overconfidence and overconfidence in your abilities, overconfidence in your standing? Is it possible this morning that you could have no idea how error-prone you are? Is it possible that you've diagnosed the main problem as 
with the other guy? And if so, you know, what are the consequences of such a spiritual misdiagnosis? Friends, these kind of questions bring us right to the heart of what we're going to be thinking about this morning in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have one, we've provided them in the seatbacks before you. You can find it on page, what page is it up there? My eyes. 837. You can find it on page 837 of the Bibles there in the seatback before you. And I recognize as you turn... Right, that we've been out of the Gospel of Mark for some six weeks or so. So, so to refresh your memory, the, the Gospel was written by John Mark, a companion of Peter's. He likely wrote the book there in Rome alongside Peter in the mid-60s, probably under the sort of increasing Neronian persecution happening there uh, by the emperor. And his purpose, we said, in writing the book was to show that Jesus is the Son of God whose life and death ransoms the people of God. All right, so you want a summary sentence for the book of Mark, there it is. Jesus is the Son of God whose life and death ransoms the people of God. And we said the theme that sort of captures that is, is Mark ten forty five. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the first half of the gospel geographically take place sort of chapter 1 through 830, all in and around Galilee. And that reveals how Jesus is uniquely the Son. We see that in his ministry. And then in the second half, right, chapter 831 through the end of chapter 16, that really records Jesus' move toward Jerusalem and reveals how he's not just the Son, but he's also the one who's going to suffer for and redeem his people. And we saw in chapter 1 how John the Baptist heralded Jesus. There it is, baptism, God commissioned him. After that, the Spirit led him. After John's arrest, Jesus, well, the gospel is proclaimed by him. The first disciples are then called to follow him through chapter 1. And then as we get into chapter, end of chapter 1, chapter 2, we see how this authority of Jesus comes on display really in remarkable ways, culminating in that claim of his to be able to forgive sins. But by chapter 2, Jesus' unorthodox ways and his unorthodox teaching, well, yeah, it's grown a big crowd, but it's also drawn the attention of the religious leaders. And in chapter 2, 1, all the way through 3, 6, what we've really got are five conflict stories where Jesus is running afoul of the religious establishment. And much of these, interestingly enough, relate to food. And it's going to culminate in chapter 3, verse 6. Each story, kind of the tension heightening, where they're going to determine and set their hearts to destroy, to destroy Jesus. And this concern with food that marks a number of these stories, initially that strikes us as rather odd. For when it comes to food, I mean, we're concerned with, like, the nature of the food, right? Is it, is it good? Is it healthy? Where did it come from? Is there gluten in it? Were they happy chickens, if you know Portlandia? you know, whatever it might be, right? But in Jesus's day, food took a back seat to the fellowship. The nature of the food wasn't nearly as important, sort of what you ate, rather as who you ate with. And who you ate with taught you a lot about a person. And so behind this debate about food we're going to see this morning is actually a debate about grace, about the nature of God's grace, And so with that in mind, let's pick up the story, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. We read there that he, referring to Jesus, 
went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now we're going to stop there, and I think one of the challenges of this text, especially to those of us familiar with our Bibles, is that we have the good guys and the bad guys all backward. So we've got the story all backward as we approach it. So to try to help you understand, so what if, for example, you woke up tomorrow morning to a New York Times article and you learned that the previous two weeks, I was in fact in Italy, but I was actually not on vacation. Instead, those happy Instagram, all those Facebook posts really just a ploy because when I was there in St. Peter's, I wasn't vacationing, but I was secretly meeting with a Russian counterpart and I was selling state secrets. I know it's a hard thing to imagine, right? But imagine that for a moment. How would you feel if that was genuinely true? You learned that your pastor, he was out selling state secrets. Right? You'd feel some combination of betrayal and anger, like a, like a Robert Hansen or an Aldrich Ames. You know, I, I was willing to go out and to sell out my own people for money. Right? I'd be a traitor. I'd be a Benedict Arnold. Recognize that's something of how tax collectors were viewed in the days of Jesus. There was no IRS, and some of you were thinking, that's wonderful, praise God. Well, the alternative was actually worse. The alternative was actually worse, because when a king needed money, what he would do is he'd assess a tax level for a district. He'd come up with some figure, and then he'd sell the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. Now, that individual at the end of the year had to provide that amount that he'd agreed to. But, of course, in order to do that, he would have to collect money. And so he would go around and hire all kinds of locals, locals who knew the town, knew the people, knew the businesses, knew the wealth of the people, knew where they stashed their money so they couldn't hide it. And that person would raise the money for this wealthy Lord. And if they raised extra, the Lord made more. Well, that's fine. He gave the king what he wanted. He kept the rest. He got wealthy. And all of his little minions running about, well, they often raised more than was needed, but that's how they padded their own pockets. And so thus, as you can see, taxation dependent upon graft and greed. The opportunities for extortion and for revenge were legion rife with corruption. Taxation often attracted the seediest elements of society. 
And to make matters worse, who are they collecting taxes for? Well, it's not for the Jewish people. It's not for schools and roads. No, they're collecting taxes to fund the Roman juggernaut of their oppression. The Romans who have them enslaved, they're collecting taxes to fund that, in their minds, wicked regime. So you can imagine how frustrated the people would be with those who got wealthy serving these oppressive powers. It would be like the French Nazi collaborators during World War II. Again, traitors. They were the most despised of all people, tax collectors. They couldn't serve as a judge. They couldn't even be called in a court of law to provide testimony because no one trusted them. They were immediately excommunicated from the synagogue. Social outcasts. Any morally upstanding Jew would abhor a tax collector. And that's how your average first century reader would look at Levi. But of course, he's the bad guy, therefore. Very clearly bad guy. And then you've got the Pharisees in in verse 16. Now, many familiar with their Bible, again, you hear Pharisees and internally you're booing, you're hissing like bad guys, right? Not good. But of course, that's not how your average ancient Near East reader, your first century reader, they wouldn't read it like that, right? The Pharisees were the good guys. They were the good guys. So we have that adjective that comes down to us, pharisaical, like hypocritical, possessing an overly censorious spirit, right? That's what we know. That's not how they were known then. They were the good guys, the embodiment of a faithful Jew. You wouldn't boo and hiss. The Pharisees come onto the scene. You're clapping. You're celebrating. Finally, the good guys have arrived. These are the guys that uphold the law. They took the Bible so seriously, they had divided the Old Testament into about 613 different commands. You might say they were, yeah, they were very pious, and thus they were very practical with their faith as well. You had 248 positive commands, 365 negative ones, one for every day of the year. And their concern for faithfulness and purity meant they would, of course, not associate with one who wasn't a Pharisee. Wouldn't buy food with them, wouldn't certainly eat with them. What if that food hadn't been tied? They'd make themselves ritually unclean, break the law. And in here, we're not just dealing with that category of people, but the scribes of the Pharisees. So a subset of that group that was especially concerned with proper law observance. These were the experts. They didn't just release the, uh, ace the religious bar exam, but rather they, they disciplined themselves to especially rigorous standards. Right? They were sort of the spiritual elite. And yet how Jesus acts toward Levi and toward these Pharisees, well, that's going to explode sort of societal norms. And though food is the pressing issue, the underlying issue becomes the scandal of divine grace. I think the message of our text is simply this. It's that the scandal of divine grace is that it embraces the unrighteous and exposes the self-righteous. The scandal of divine grace is that it embraces the unrighteous and exposes the self-righteous. So let's just, we're going to break that up, that sort of summary sentence. Thinking first point for you note takers, divine grace is scandalous because it embraces the unrighteous. It's the first thing I want you to see. Divine grace is scandalous because it embraces the unrighteous. And this is exactly what we see with Jesus' treatment of Levi. 
Right? So the scene opens. Jesus is beside the Gal- uh, Sea of Galilee. And what is he doing? He's teaching. He's teaching the crowds. Doesn't say he was entertaining the crowds. Says he was teaching them. Now that's not presumably why many came to him. Of course, many we know sought miracles. Others we know did just want to be entertained. You know, Jesus is the best gig in town. It's free. Go. Who knows what the guy's going to say? Who knows what he's going to do? And yet Jesus persistently knew that the people's great need was to be instructed by the word. It's why we always find him regularly in the gospels. He's teaching. He's teaching which is just another reminder why in every historic Protestant church like this one, you're going to see the main service, the service you're in, you're going to see it given over to the priority of the preached word. It's that word that brings life. It's that word that we need. Right? This service, if you haven't figured it out, it wasn't designed to entertain you. We're confessing together articles of faith on our sin. Right? That For most of you, that's not what you deem entertainment. But it's true, and it's what we need to hear. That's what we need to be reminded of. It's what the world's never going to tell us, but it's what God knows about us. It's what we must know about ourselves. We need to be instructed, not merely entertained. All right, that's verse 13. But then in verse 14, the inexplicable thing happens. Walking by the tax uh, tax booth, Jesus spies Levi. He doesn't spit on him. He doesn't hurl insults at Levi. But instead, he invites Levi to follow him. He invites this tax collector, this traitor. It's one who's committed treason against his own people and and profiting off them. He said, you, he's called that guy to follow him. Now imagine you're the disciples. We already know he's got at least four from back in chapter one. You'd be indignant. Jesus, that's Levi, right? The tax collector. What are you doing inviting that guy? I'm not going to hang with that guy. He's not going to walk with us. You know, maybe he stole from their families. We don't know. Everybody knows you don't associate with the likes of a guy like that. You certainly don't embrace them. He's not worthy. He's undeserving. He's our enemy. But that's not how Jesus saw it. That's not how Jesus saw Levi. You know, I noted that the Previous few weeks, we had the privilege of celebrating my mom's 70th. We were in Italy. We were traveling. And, of course, if you're going to go to Italy, one city you can't miss is Florence. And centuries ago, it was a time when if you were a famous artist or architect or sculptor, whatever it might be, you would flock to Florence. It was the place to be. And during that time, there was a, there was a large marble block delivered from a famous quarry to that city square and the famous Donatello saw it, and he looked over it, but he quickly dismissed it. Too many imperfections, he said. The marble block would be of no use. Countless others would walk by. They, too, would shun it. And so it sat in that cathedral square in Florence, and it sat in the shadows until one sculptor looked at that block, and he saw something different. He didn't see the imperfections of what it was, but he rather saw the perfection of what it could be. And so we went to work day after day, hammering and chipping, grind away, chiseling at this block of marble. And years later, after much sweat and toil, the greats gathered around that famous cathedral square there in Florence. You had da Vinci, you had Botticelli, skeptical, all of them, over what could have been made of this flawed marble block. 
Yet as that sculpture was unveiled, everyone immediately understood that it was a great masterpiece. It was celebrated. It was put out there in the cathedral square for everyone to see it, to rejoice in it. And of course, we know that sculpture today as Michelangelo's David. Arguably the most famous sculpture in all of history. All because a man looked beyond the flaws of what was to the potential of what it could be. Friends, that's what Jesus does with Levi. He doesn't see merely a tax collector. He sees in Levi a man made in the image of God. He looks beyond all that's contemptible about him, and presumably there was much. He looks beyond that contemptibility, and he sees potential, an opportunity for divine grace. And of course, we know Levi as whom? We know him by his other name, as Matthew, right? The one who would not only become a disciple, become the author of the first gospel, a literary masterpiece in its own right, right? Cherished and loved and enjoyed far more, frankly, than Michelangelo's David ever will be. Now listen, it's possible that you've come in here this morning and and you're assuming that your sins, your flaws are too great for God, right? Your life is too scandalous for him, that your past is too intolerable for him, and you're sickened by it. And so you're here in the crippling fear that maybe there's just no hope for you. But friend, you need to know that nobody, nobody is too gone for God. Not a one. I mean, look again at Jesus' embrace, his call to Levi. He calls out to this tax collector and says, follow me. He loves the unlovely. He delights to redeem those who are furthest from God. And if you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, you read Acts, it seems often those furthest from God have the best shot. They grasp their need. They grasp his grace. It's why he came. Not, as he says, to call the righteous, but to call sinners. It's why he lived the way he did. It's why he loved the way he did. It's why he went to the cross, the perfect son of God, willingly laid down his life as a substitute for all who would repent and believe in him, who would repent of their sin, who would run to him. Well, friend, if you've come and you've not placed your faith in Christ, if somehow your past has held you back, oh, I pray you'd run to him. I pray you'd receive him. I promise you there's not another one who will love you as he has who will be faithful to you as he will be faithful to you. You know, we sang Amazing Grace earlier. Many of you will know this. Some of you may not. John Newton himself was a human trafficker. That's how he lived his life, profiting off the sale of other men, women, and children, treating them like chattel until he was driven to despair and God called out to him and he was saved and he followed And he wrote for us and left us that wonderful song we sang, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And remarkably, with that simple call of Jesus, what does Levi do? Well, he follows him. He follows him. And I say that's remarkable. Yeah, is Jesus worthy of it? Absolutely. But why is it remarkable? Because Jesus hasn't apparently said a whole lot to Levi. And in following Jesus, Levi is leaving an incredibly lucrative profession. 
tax collectors quite wealthy. I mean, they're going to gather in Levi's house in verse 15 because he's got the sweet crib. Like, if you want to meet at a place, you go to Levi's house, the Viking ranges. He's got the indoor theater system, the palatial pool and the fountains. I mean, it's the place to go. And yet when we read of this account in Luke, we read that Levi left everything. He left everything. Because Jesus is worth it. And that's what it means to be a disciple, modeling that simple act of leaving all to follow Christ. Right? Disciples don't simply believe in Jesus in some amorphous sense. No, they follow him, which means they listen to his words, and then they seek to obey those very same words. You know, I talked with one recently who, who admitted to me, who admitted to me that they, they actually weren't heeding Jesus' words in their own life. They frankly didn't have any intention to heed Jesus' words with their own life, but they then went on to assure me that they were confident that they and Jesus were still good. All was still okay. The copacetic, all was good. We're fine, they said. Jesus is about grace. He's not about the rules. Of course, friends, Jesus is about grace. We've been celebrating that grace. We see it with Levi. But one transformed by grace cherishes his word. And in response to that grace, trusts in the goodness of those words of Jesus and seeks to follow those words of Jesus. Friends, don't be deceived. You're not a friend of Christ if you're not following his word. It's that simple. Don't be deceived. You're not a friend of Christ if you're not following his word. And yet perhaps even more remarkable than Jesus' call of Levi and, and Levi's immediate response is what happened next. Verse 15, we read that Jesus is now reclining at the table where? In his house, meaning in Levi's house. Now that language of reclining at table doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it's the language of a banquet, of a banquet. It seems they've, they've gathered for a party at Levi's house. And not only is Jesus there in Levi's home, but we also read going on that there are many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Right? He's thrown a conversion party. Right? It's a coming out party, if you will. He's going public with his new allegiances with this Jesus. And he's invited all of his friends over. I mean, think about it. This, might have, this must have been quite the soiree to get all these folks together, one can only wonder, what would the conversations have been like in that house? Well, now a meal to us again. It's largely about food. It's a time, right, we consume calories until we get hungry and we need to eat again. We treat food somewhat in a utilitarian kind of way. And maybe we sit down at a table. Maybe we just sit in front of the TV. Maybe we just eat while in the car, eat on the run. But in Jesus's culture, when you shared a meal together, that was a sign of identification. It was a sign of acceptance. It was a very intimate affair to share a meal with someone else. You know, when we lived in D.C., there was a popular bakery restaurant called Le Pain. It started in Belgium. They have a number of locations in the U.S. But one of the things that marks out this restaurant, in addition to its pastries, is the fact that you don't really find tables of two or tables of four. There's just these large common tables where you gather and sit, maybe 
20 chairs around a table, and you ate with strangers, and that's what you did. Well, just recognize that conception of eating with a stranger, fast food, or whatever it might be, that, that conception is entirely foreign to Jesus' culture. You would, you would just never do that. You would never eat at a common table. You, you ate with those whom you knew. You ate with those you respected, you trusted. And again, who you ate with could tell you a lot about a person. And so here we find Jesus parting it up in the home of a tax collector with a host of other tax collectors and sinners. Sinners, just a broad term referring to those who had sort of wanton disregard for the Jewish law. No real interest or concern for it. And it says that they're reclining with Jesus, which is a subtle way of suggesting that actually Jesus is at the head of the table. He's the host of this party in Levi's own home. So this isn't a minor breach of etiquette, right? This is scandalous. This is offensive. If you're the local sort of Capernaum cop and you're trying to figure out where are the most seedy elements of society, apparently all you got to do is track down Jesus and they're all with him. They're all hanging with him. Right? It explains later in the Gospels why Jesus will regularly be accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because of how he spends time. Whining and dining regularly, it seems, with these people who don't have much in the way of religious scruples. But friends, Jesus, he wasn't afraid to break with societal customs, even religious conventions, in order to embrace the lost, in order to meet them, to share with them. And friends, I think that that should challenge us. His own example should challenge us. You know, are you willing to step out of your own comfort zone in order to befriend and in order to converse with with someone who doesn't know Christ? Is that something you do? I mean, do you have many non-Christian friendships, like real friendships? I mean, if you gathered all the Christians you knew, could you even fill up your home? Could you even fill up your dinner table? And if not, why not? You know, could it be that perhaps you don't share that same heart that Jesus shared toward the lost? Might that provide a little diagnosis of where your own heart is? Cause you to step back and consider where your heart is. But friends, I think in this meal, we actually have a little picture of the Lord's Supper where Jesus invites not the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to dine with him and where he dines with us. And if you've been invited to the Lord's table, why would you not invite sinners to your own? If God has called you to his table, are others not worthy of your table? Are they not worthy of your time, your energy, your grace, or your compassion? Friends, the scandal of divine grace is that it embraces the unrighteous. It embraces them. Do you? Why won't you? How will you even this week strategize to do the same, to embrace them? But I want us to see a second thing. And that's that divine grace is scandalous because it exposes the self-righteous. Yet it embraces the unrighteous. It does that. But we're also going to see it exposes the self-righteous. It exposes the self-righteous. Because enter in verse 16, the Pharisees. 
But now remember, you got to remember, these are the good guys. The good guys, the protectors, the defenders of all that is good in Jewish life. And when they get a glimpse of Jesus carousing with the likes of Levi and these tax collectors and his friends, it's just too much. So to try to help you understand, I mean, imagine how you would feel if you were driving down crossover near Joyce and you noticed my car in the Planned Parenthood parking lot. And you noticed that I was actually attending the fundraiser. And I was there inside, carousing, laughing, and drinking with the local abortion doctors. Well, that might give you some indication of how the Pharisees might have felt to witness Jesus eating and dining with these tax collectors and sinners. They would have had contempt for him. No morally self-respecting Jew would have thought Jesus was doing the right thing here. This would have really challenged their understanding of of what embracing grace looks like. And we know that some of Jesus' own disciples were struggling at the same time because the Pharisees are going to talk to some of them. And the Pharisees would not dare step foot in that house. A morally repugnant idea. Never consider it. It would make them unclean. Wouldn't dream of it. But they have a conversation because apparently some of the disciples themselves were a little reluctant to enter into that house. They're sitting outside. And so they pose a question to his disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But that's not an innocent question. That's an indictment. It carries its own judgment. I mean, what sort of religious leader possibly behaves like this? Now, whether Jesus overhears the question or some of the disciples share the question with him, we don't know. But in verse 17, we hear Jesus' devastating response. And this is really the culminating moment. This is the reason why we know so often this story. For he responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we have to see his point is partly, not fully, but partly, that, of course, what do physicians do? Physicians care for those who are in need. And, of course, in caring for one who's in need, you're bound to get your hands dirty. You might be exposed to some messy and rather unpleasant things, right? But that's what physicians do. If you're an ER doc, you know that life, a nurse, you know, it gets messy, but that's what it means to be a physician. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing, I'm getting messy with these folks in order to reach them, share the gospel with them. And by implication, he's saying, Pharisees, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're standing outside. You have so walled yourself off from the world, you have no contact, no communication. I'm walling myself in. An opportunity to share, to talk. Jesus isn't going to violate the law formally. He's not going to sin. But he's going to put himself in some tricky positions in order to share the gospel. These Pharisees unwilling to do that, unwilling to walk through those doors, to to engage, for they might become in some way unclean, might be exposed to unpleasant things. You see, the, the Pharisees are a little like surgeons who can scrub up really, really well. Right? They trim the nails. They clean them. They get that water going. It's scalding hot. They're going to kill everything that might be on their arms. They're going to lather up really nice, plenty of disinfectant. Their arms will be clean. They take scrubbing into a whole new level, the Pharisees do. 
But then when the first patient comes in the door, they take one look and they say, yeah, I can't perform the surgery. I might get my hands dirty. Well, they're so enamored with their meticulously scrubbed-in hands that they're unwilling and unable to recognize the whole purpose of having those clean hands is so that they can help those who are in need. And Jesus is exposing, therefore, their false holiness. He's exposing their unrighteousness. For they're happier to criticize and cast stones than they are to care and to communicate with these tax collectors and sinners. I wonder if that ever sounds like you. A lot easier and a lot happier criticizing, casting stones, than it is to actually think about how do I communicate and care for the lost around me? And if so, I I want you to see you're far more in danger of aligning yourselves with the Pharisees than you are in aligning yourself with Jesus. But not only is Jesus highlighting how these Pharisees ought to be, how a true physician, rather, ought to be caring for those in need, but he's actually revealing as well how Jesus actually has nothing to offer the person who has no spiritual need, the person who thinks they're well. Now, the truth is, we all want to think we're okay, right? More than that, we want to think we're pretty good. We want to think we're certainly better than average. You know, it was a number of weeks ago I talked about that illusory superiority, you know, where 70% of drivers think they're better than average, which obviously, statistically speaking, can't be true, right? Can't be true. But we all like to think it's true. You can ask my kids, all right? Okay. But you realize that's not just on the road. We carry that illusory superiority into our relationship with God, where we think, well, God and I are probably good. Yeah, I make mistakes, but, you know, I'm better than average, per se, or at least I'm good enough. The Pharisees thought the same. I mean, goodness, they had 613 commands to show for it. But here's the thing. Christ is of no help to you until you understand there is something deeply wrong with you. He's of no help to you until you understand there is something deeply wrong with you. That's why we confessed that article, Article 3. It's what the Pharisees paid lip service to, perhaps, but they never really grasped. Right? Christianity is not for good people. It's only for bad people who know themselves to be bad and in need. And this is what is so often misunderstood. It's what the Pharisees themselves, again, misunderstood. They thought their problem could be rectified by outward obedience. Right? They misunderstood what Dusty read for us from Hosea 6.6. God desires steadfast love. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of him rather than burnt offerings. He cares about that heart that sees the need. Like, like the ER doc in that tragic case I gave at the start of, of Rory Staunton. Right? The Pharisees had misdiagnosed their problem. They thought you know, a little nausea medication would, would help them would cure them, when the reality was the problem was much deeper. The problem was in their blood. They had an infection. They were dying from the inside out, and they didn't know it. They didn't know how deep that problem lay. So, my friend, if you're coming this morning trusting that you and God are on pretty good terms, 
You're, again, a pretty good person, faithful, work relationships, you know, in your marriage, whatever it might be, an upstanding citizen. I mean, you're thinking, like, what does God require after all, perfection? I mean, come on. Well, I just want you to take note of what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you are in grave danger of overestimating God's assessment of you. You're actually in much greater danger than you realize. For we're we're not okay. Again, it's what we've confessed. We've transgressed God's command both by nature and by choice. We choose sin over God. Deep down, we're actually not, in fact, good people. And it's only when we've been stripped of this pretension that the gospel then actually becomes good news. For Christianity does say, yeah, actually God does demand perfection. He's that good. He's that holy and that just. Which is why what you wouldn't do, what I wouldn't do, right? Live only and always to please God. That's what Christ has done for you in his sinless life and in his death. Right? What you couldn't do, pay the debt of your sins. None of us can do that before a holy God. Christ did that for you as well. He died as your substitute there on the cross. Right? So what do you do? What the Pharisees were unwilling to do, finally confess their need and cast themselves upon the mercy of God. That's the response. That's Levi's response as he follows. That's what all of us do and ought to do in following Christ. It's not try harder. It's not moral reformation. It's not look inside yourself. It's not blithely assume, okay, everything's got to be okay. That's what the world says. I'm sure it's right. No, you got to look alone to Jesus who stands ready and able to save. All right. Friends, how does the classic hymn go? I mean, you know that hymn. If I thought about it, we should have sung it this morning. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. But it's not come ye righteous, full and wealthy, happy, fat and content. I mean, that's not how the song goes. And we know those people, they don't come to Jesus. They don't see their need. Friends, what finally unites us to God, the bond between us, it's not our goodness. It's Christ. It's not our righteousness, but his. It's not our merit, but his. It's not our riches, but his. Always, only. And this is what the Pharisees could not accept, and this was the scandal of grace. That their lives... All their best efforts, all your best efforts will never be enough for God. They couldn't accept that a man like Levi would eat, possibly eat alongside them at God's banquet table. They were spiritual stuck-ups, simply what the Pharisees were. Jesus exposed them as such. And friends, that's the risk many of us face. We risk misdiagnosing our own spiritual condition. You know, is it possible this morning that perhaps you suffer from a spiritual overconfidence? Is it possible you suffer from such overconfidence this morning? Is it just possible that you actually have no idea how error-prone you are? Is it possible that you've misdiagnosed the main problem as with the other guy? Friends, Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners. 
the scandal of divine grace is that it embraces such sinners. It embraces the unrighteous and it exposes self-righteousness. Oh friend, how has that grace exposed you? How will it embrace you? 